Hey, it's Mark. Building a more inclusive biomedical industry is a cause we should all support. This week, we're bringing you an interview with someone with a relentless commitment to promoting diversity within her own biotech organization and the industry as a whole. Trivia Frazier, president and CEO of Obatala Sciences, is a member of this year's Women of Distinction class, and for good reason. To list a few of her impressive bona fides, Trivia serves as an ambassador in her community of New Orleans, is a key speaker at scientific events, and was recently invited by the White House to join their NIH discussion panel during National HBCU Week, where she spoke about advancing educational equity, excellence, and economic opportunity. She has not only found a unique way to connect all of her passions and science in the biotech sector, but she's also become a voice for underrepresented women and people of color in the lab and in clinical trials. It will be our privilege to formally induct trivia into the Women of Distinction next Monday, May 15th in NYC at the Ceremony and Educational Summit. In this preview podcast, we spoke about the roots of her advocacy, the lessons she learned growing up in her mother's beauty salon about building a safe and welcoming space for the community, and her take on the remaining challenges on the road to DEI and biotech. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey, Mark, today I'll talk about the FDA's advisory panel's unanimous decision in support of making birth control available for over the counter use. And Jack, we uh, switched up the format for your segment on what's trending on healthcare social media, right? Yeah. So the three stories we've got this week are Mr. Beast's viral video helping a thousand deaf people hear again, Sarah Lang's hashtag fist bumps for ALS challenge, and The Onion publishes a phony Fauci op-ed as the COVID-19 pandemic emergency phase ends. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. This is Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large for MMM, and this week I have the great privilege of interviewing Trivia Frazier, President and CEO of Obatala Sciences. She's a PhD MBA, both of which she earned at Tulane University. In the fall of 2022, Trivia was named to the board of the board of Tulane University, and uh, as we said at the top of the broadcast, the White House invited her to join their NIH discussion panel during National HBCU Week, where she spoke about advancing educational equity, excellence, and economic opportunity. She's also a member of the 2023 Women of Distinction program, and uh, we hope you enjoy this preview interview uh, and that you'll consider joining us on Monday, May 15th, as we celebrate all the 2023 honorees and also hear from keynote speaker Diana Contreras, Chief Healthcare Officer at Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Ticket information available at mmmwomenofdistinction.com. Welcome, Trivia, to the MMM podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And uh, pleasure's all ours. Uh, so I just want to start off uh, with kind of touching on your academic background, which marries engineering, physics, and biology, and uh, how that set the stage for the thought leader uh, you are today. Um, you know, as we, we ticked off some of your accomplishments earlier, impressive stuff there. Tell us how it all started and what set the stage for your climb in terms of growing up in New Orleans. And, uh, you know, you, you talked about how you were influenced by your mother, uh, who was an entrepreneur, and uh, you kind of learned a lot from her. Yes, thank you uh, for that. Um, that introduction as well, sharing, you know, that combination of, of different disciplines in the scientific uh, realm that I gravitated to uh, quite early on. Um, but my mother absolutely has been an influence for me, both uh, personally and professionally. 
And it really wasn't until I took a moment to sit back and think about uh, this evolution as a scientist and as an entrepreneur that that aha moment sort of kicked in where the entrepreneurship influence and, and introduction to it as something that is feasible started with my mother. Uh, she was an entrepreneur. She owned a beauty salon and it was an integral part of the neighborhood. I remember uh, many of the people who you know, frequent, uh, who attended the salon, who came to not only visit my mother to, uh, you know, get their beauty uh, activities done, but also, uh, you know, people who had very valuable conversations, those uh conversations that were both with, you know, men and women who frequented the salon and would talk about different challenges that they experienced in their lives, talked about uh, the value of the neighborhood and the changes that were going on in the neighborhood. And I, I had a chance to get insight into you know, the uh, community aspects where in a business could be considered to be an integral part of a community. But also I had a little insight into the challenges of running a business, um, you know, the, the aspects of bookkeeping and, and thinking about the financials when it comes to supporting your employees, um, you know, the interface with the customers and, and keeping the customer first in terms of the goals. Uh, and so some of our core values values at the company have been influenced by that experience that I had earlier on. Mm -hmm. yeah. My mother also wanted to be an entrepreneur, uh, sorry, also wanted to be a scientist. Uh, and oh. so she exposed me to a number of things when I was younger um, in the way of, or I guess, what would have been seen as technological advancement. And at that time, electronic Bibles, for example, uh, different things that uh, were not typically the norm. And it wasn't out of the ordinary for me to sort of venture out and learn more about things that really were piquing my curiosity. Hmm. So, so really some important lessons there. And it sounds like you really learned through osmosis from your mother. Uh, and then kind of just like that, you discovered uh, the joy of lab research. Talk about what inspired you to go into science and then specifically tissue engineering and stem cell research and that side of the industry. Yes, also um, deeply rooted there in terms of my uh, exposure at home. My mother suffered from a disease, a bone disease called Paget's disease. Uh, it's a genetic disorder, and it's more commonly diagnosed uh, within males that are older than 50 um, and of European descent. Um, the reason why that was that was important was uh, it took about 10 years for my mother to get an accurate diagnosis. And the attending physician uh, did share with her that the reason why, or at least a part of the reason why it was difficult for the other physicians to understand what was going on and they were treating essentially the side effects, they didn't really know the root problem was partly because they were just not used to seeing this disease prevalent or present within African-American women that are younger than 50. Um, and so, you know, from that, hearing that from her, that inspired me to learn a little bit more about what 
opportunities there are for us to overcome these types of challenges when it comes to people who are suffering from diseases, um, for us to understand really how the human body is responding to therapies that are out there existing for treatment of diseases, but also how can we improve what's what's currently available? What information are we missing um, so that you know we can have more accurate diagnoses? And so I early on did uh, fall in love with physics, um, partly because no one told me that it was difficult uh, <laughs> as, as a young high schooler getting huh. introduced to it. My high school teacher said, well, you know, this is simple. You guys can get this. And at that moment, it was like. Of course, this makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. Using mathematics to describe our observations, um, and that was a, you know the combination of that again a curiosity. Um, how can we improve what is currently available and develop the next stage of of uh, therapies, or at least fill that knowledge gap there on the biological side and that love for physics. Um, it was sort of a natural evolution whereby the the interdisciplinary approach just it fell into place with tissue engineering. Mm-hmm. Sounds very sounds kind of like very a fateful course of events. Your mother suffered from this disease, unfortunately, and and you saw the medical system unable to kind of um, you know adequately address it. it. Took her ten years, well, to to get the diagnosis, um, and then at the same time, you know, you were saying, you know, that one of your earliest uh, educational experiences, you know, which you know, where your teacher saying you, you guys can do this, you know, it shows the importance of one's first exposure to something. You know, that somebody tells you, you know, it really the, the way somebody describes something to you really has a big impact on the way you relate to that subject. Uh, but you know, sort of getting having that early experience of uh, you know, in, in, in physics, um, kind of seems like it, it, it was very telling and sort of setting the stage for you to combine these two elements, uh, you know, science with, with your ability to then tackle, you know, and seemingly intractable problems, uh, like, uh, you know, the gaps we have, uh, in, in, in medicine in, in terms of adequately caring for communities of color. And so, um, to kind of fast forward here, you had a, a stint at a, at a community college. You were teaching there, and then you were invited to join the faculty at Dillard University, uh, a historically black college or university, um, and um, where you uh, served as a physics department chair, spearheaded the university's first undergrad medical physics program. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in 2016, you decided to go into industry. What factored into the decision to leave academia? That was a difficult decision, but. Um there were a couple things there. One was my love for research, going back to that early exposure, that curiosity. Um, and I was exposed to research as an undergraduate, and that changed, really did change my trajectory. Um, I, up until that point, thought that um, I did enjoy interacting with my teachers and my professors. And so I felt, well, maybe I'll become a professor myself. But being exposed to research um, and research at the bench, you know, using my hands and, and, and designing experiments, putting that hypothesis to work, so to speak, that was really, truly a, a joy, something that I was passionate about. And I quickly realized that, um, you know, 
full-time teaching in the classroom did not afford me that ability to continue with that passion, that side of me. It still was a difficult decision because I enjoyed teaching so much. And ultimately, having the opportunity to explore you know, what could this research that I'm doing, what could it do really in getting to that goal of better understanding how patients respond to therapies and supporting that idea of filling the gap? The only way to do that is for that research to translate, to to get out of the lab, to graduate from the lab and to be commercialized. That was, you know, truly a deciding factor for me. Another one was on a personal level, I didn't want to have regrets. I did not want to find myself, you know, at the point of in this thought process at the thought of retirement saying, I wish I would have just stepped out and explored, you know, where where would this go? What could it become? And after losing many nights of sleep, <laughs> I still took that leap of faith because of those two reasons. And it be, it really did um, become a, a decision that I, I don't regret. And I do refer to it as one of the best decisions that I made uh, for my professional career and personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the desire to sort of translate that research into uh, commercialized you know, products. Um, and also, uh, you know, wanting to look back on your life and, and, and have it be one of fulfillment. Ultimately, uh, you then co-founded Obatala in 2017, uh, which is a state of the art biotech company based in New Orleans. Um, tell us about that as well as, um, how you're dedicated to driving diversity in research, uh, through the product offerings that you have. Yes. So in, um, 2016, when I left academia, and joined what was then our parent company, LaSalle, which focused on manufacturing stem cells. Again, it brought me back to research. Uh, The research that we were funded to to commercialize was research that I started as a postdoctoral fellow, demonstrating that we could get stem cells from discarded medical tissue. And as a part of that funding from the National Science Foundation, we were mandated to conduct customer discovery. That customer discovery process elucidated a number of challenges that researchers currently had at the bench um, and and highlighted the fact that there was an opportunity to use this platform and commercialize it as a technology within an entity. So spin it off as a company and really press forward with marketing this this technology to help advance the field, to advance research. That customer discovery was something that we allowed to guide the trajectory, and that influenced us in uh, co-founding, my co-founders and I, co-founding Obatala Sciences. Um, And that also became a part of um, the core foundation with respect to the approach that we take. And so let, for example, the customers being first and guiding that, you know, decision-making process with the improvement of product products, new products that are coming out on the market, but also as it pertains to some of the things you just highlighted with uh, promoting diversity in research. 
what was made abundantly clear was that it wasn't only a lack of data on the patient side, that pain that my mother experienced and that I was passionate about in terms of understanding, but it was also uh, a challenge for researchers to get access to information that extended outside of the mouse model, that extended outside of the traditional um, cells that were available. And so we then said, okay, let's take a step back and see how we can use uh, the diversity available here within New Orleans, the diversity that is prevalent within different areas throughout the United States, and bring this information about the patients that are traditionally underrepresented, that are traditionally not included in, in historical data in the context of females, for example, women not being represented in certain clinical trials, um, bring access to those researchers. And that is a part of that pipeline that gets us in the right direction when it comes to the patient ultimately reaping the reward. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll come back to that, but wow, it's amazing. Um, that postdoc research you did basically on, again, showing that stem cells can be harvested from discarded medical tissue, then spinning that out into a company um, and then recalling you know, your early experience, you know, seeing the, the lack of data um, and how that could really translate into um, uh, a real, um, you know, you know, gaps in, in medicine, medical care, um, kind of propelled you along this path. Um, but you, you've done much to foster the creation um, of the uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, NOLA bio district, including Obatala. Uh, talk about that for a second. If you want. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I recall so vividly was the uh, matriculation through the tissue engineering program at Tulane and uh, having to make a decision about what to do with my life after graduation as an undergraduate uh, before deciding to uh, go into research and even after being exposed to research. Um, the options that I felt were available to me were I would either pursue graduate school, medical school, or leave the state to enter the industry and work in, in the field. And at that time, tissue engineering was something, it was appreciated as a multidisciplinary uh, field that could help to advance uh, or, or address some of the challenges that were there within the transplant industry, for example, but also things beyond um, that were never even conceptualized. Tissue engineering could address that, but there still was this gap in terms of uh, jobs that were available on the industry side outside of academia. Um, and so, you know, when we founded Obatala, recognizing that this is something that could grow here within New Orleans, that could contribute to um, the biotechnology industry, which you know is is flourishing, starting to to grow here and expand. But it also is an opportunity for us to change that uh, that paradigm that existed when I was an undergraduate, for us to uh, build here and and contribute to the workforce development, to contribute to economic development in a sense by providing an opportunity for those trainees that 
really are highly specialized. They are, you know, well-skilled individuals who want to learn more about the industry. They want to contribute to their field, but they don't want to go to graduate school. They want to enter into the field um, and, and get, you know, get working in the laboratory. And so that was a part of the, the starting point for us to partner with pretty much all of the local universities and colleges here, um, you know, having several programs that are within engineering and in biology here, it really was a great uh, opportunity for us to establish a pipeline. So we have partnerships with the HBCUs. We have partnerships with a number of the programs whereby the students can come and they can learn about what we do through internships. Um, But we're also funded by the NIH to build a bioentrepreneurship program that is a five-year program in partnership with the University of New Orleans that bridges the research in aging with uh, getting experience in business. And that is the start for those individuals who graduate from those programs to then join our company or other biotechnology companies or even found their own companies and contribute to uh, this growing ecosystem. Great, great, amazing. Um, and we should also mention that the the company, your company, Obatala, um, you you chose this name, uh, I read, because uh, Obatala is actually uh, a West African deity who sculpted humans from clay and protects those with disabilities. And uh, you chose the name because of your Nigerian heritage and commitment to creating more accurate models of human tissue through cell biology that reflect all races, ages, and conditions. That's really a wonderful way to kind of pull that through in, in biotech, I thought. Um, and when you, you, you speak on the, on the speaking circuit, you know, when you were at the bio convention in 2022, uh, you were on this fostering diversity and bioequity through novel financing and training initiatives uh, track. How do you talk about how you foster diversity in tissue engineering and stem cell research? Yes, yes. All, um, you know, those activities are centered around this idea of not only bringing opportunity for students that otherwise would not know that those opportunities are available, um, but also granting that that exposure, something that we discussed a bit earlier, which was just realizing that uh, the possibility exists. Right. I was told by my teacher that this is something that you can grasp. This is accessible. This is easy. And not having the representation for a number of students at different levels, you know, who have told me, I am so inspired because I see here is a black woman in the field doing research. And I wasn't aware that there are people who actually can go on and start companies and run companies that is in, you know, it's in this field, it's actually working in this field. And the, you know, it goes back to um, making something accessible, making it, uh, you know, something that is obtainable. I think that makes a difference because students are and, and people in general are willing to work towards a goal uh, if the pathway is made clear to them. And so a lot of what 
I'm supporting and focusing um, on, uh, you know, and that discussion with the NIH was centered around how do we make opportunities accessible and how do we make the pathway visible for people who really do want to work in the field, who really want to contribute in the field and are quite capable of doing so, um, changing that that thought process of individuals who don't look like me, they're not capable of addressing issues or challenges or stepping up to that level of performance, when in actuality, anyone is capable of doing it. It's just having that opportunity and understanding a pathway that provides that particular uh, outcome. Sure, sure. Um, And you're providing one such pathway. Since you mentioned that question, uh, you know, what can we do? Uh, that leads to my next uh, question for you, uh, Trivia. You've become a voice for underrepresented women and people of color in the lab and in clinical trials. What do you think needs to change in these areas? Great question. Uh, there are a lot of things that need to change. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we start? Where do we start? Answer a question with a question. Uh, I think One of the things that has needed to change for a long time is the the notion that diversity exists solely within this uh, black and white dichotomy, that that is the extension of diversity. And when we speak about supporting the development of therapies for patients of all backgrounds, you know, there's a growing aging population that needs better therapies to support and protect our brains, our mental health, and, and the, the cellular structure that is aging. There's a growing population, you know, of, of women that need Um, more therapies that are are available for endometriosis and other diseases that impact the reproductive system. Um, And so when we look at diversity, it is much more than the historical racial tensions that the United States has faced, right? Or that you know, those of us who have gone through the diaspora have have faced. It is really the inclusion when we speak about diversity, we're speaking about how do we make sure that those people who suffer from rare diseases, that they have options um, and independent of their background, independent of, you know, those factors that are traditionally seen within a demographic standpoint, how can we make sure we utilize the best available resources available to us in a way of our intellectual aptitude to advance mankind? And so that needs to change. I think some of the challenges that we've been facing recently, um, you know, with people who are are basically in of mixed uh, backgrounds facing certain types of diseases, uh, I think that is in us recognizing here's an opportunity for us to say, okay, beyond the genetic predisposition, what other elements, what other factors are there for exposure to certain types of diseases that people face? And how can we address this challenge and solve it together? Um, Private and, and public partnerships are helping to support those types of things. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, data is, is oftentimes uh, at the root of a lot of these problems. Um, do you see that? Uh, you know, are you encouraged by uh, efforts uh, that you see in that in those areas to uh, be more inclusive in, in research and clinical trials, um, so that once products get on the market, you know, we have the data to back up efficacy claims in various you know, populations. Absolutely, absolutely, and the FDA. Um, is making strides to support that direction um, with the Modernization Act that w- that just passed, and also the mandate for the inclusion of a diversity plan with uh, anyone, you know, any group that is pursuing the development of a new therapy uh, within the context of clinical trials. That is truly a step forward in the right direction. Um, there has been sort of a push towards the inclusion of different populations who may be impacted in the context of a new therapy from the NIH side. Uh, for example, the women and minorities inclusion statement that is required for, for applying for funding. Um, but the federal mandate, I think, does get us moving in the right direction. And the data that will come out of those types of studies that are more uh, that are better designed, that are more inclusive from the standpoint of controls, I think will definitely move us in that direction. Okay, great. Well, suffice it to say, your your commitment to promoting diversity within your own organization and the industry manifests in many other ways. Um, you know, you were recognized by the uh, New Orleans mayor as an honoree, um, the Louisiana Economic Development. Uh, council recognized uh, your business as one of 11 uh, to receive support from the Diversity and, and Entrepreneurship Initiative. Um, and I think I speak for the entire MMM team when I say that we most certainly find you an inspiring person, uh, extremely worthy inductee of this year's Women of, Women of Distinction, and a role model for all women in this industry, and really anyone who's concerned about promoting bioequity or championing DEI in, in their organization which is a cause we can all get behind. So Trivia, thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to continuing the conversation at the Women of Distinction event uh, next Monday, the 15th in NYC. Thank you, Mark. This has been such a pleasurable conversation. Um, I'm looking forward to the event as well. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. On Wednesday, all 17 members of an FDA panel voted in support of making birth control available over the counter. Independent advisors agreed unanimously that the benefits of the pill in question, OPIL, outweigh its potential risks as an over the counter medication. FDA experts had previously raised some concerns around ensuring consumers with certain health conditions, like breast cancer, who aren't the best candidates for the pill, would be aware enough on their own to not take the drug. But the panelists agreed the benefits were greater than those risks. The FDA has yet to make an official decision on OPIL, though typically the agency follows the advice of its advisory panels. Such a decision would make OPIL the first contraceptive to be available without a prescription. The expansion would, in theory, cut down barriers to getting birth control for people who may be lacking access. The maker of the pill, HRA Pharma, submitted an over-the-counter application last summer. OPIL has been available in the U.S. since 1973. Perigo, which owns HRA Pharma, said in a statement that it's, quote, proud to lead the way in making contraception more accessible to women in the U.S. 
The American Medical Association also put out a statement in response to the decision, noting it, quote, strongly supports removing the prescription access barrier to contraception, and that, quote, access is one of the most cited reasons why patients do not use oral contraceptives, use them inconsistently, or discontinue use altogether. The FDA is expected to make an official decision in the next few months. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Or should I say what three trends are trending on social media? Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. Yeah, the first one is actually something that we talked about a few months ago when Lesher reported on YouTuber Mr. Beast's viral video where he paid for eye surgeries for low-income patients who had a form of curable blindness. As part of the package, Mr. Beast also gifted a child a $50,000 college fund check and someone else a Tesla. The video generated a polarizing response, with some finding the content heartwarming while others criticized Mr. Beast, accusing him of using performative charity as a publicity stunt. Additionally, many expressed anger at the fact that a relatively simple 10-minute procedure is unavailable for low-income people. Well, just days ago, Mr. Beast, whose real name is Jimmy Donaldson, doubled down on the project by publishing a video titled 1,000 Deaf People Here for the First Time. The video, which already has 38 million views as of Tuesday afternoon, renewed the debate over Donaldson's actions. Some say deaf people deserve better than, quote, inspiration porn, while others like Elon Musk defended him, tweeting, quote, people definitely shouldn't be attacked for doing good. Is it really just a question of money to restore hearing? And I know, Lesha, that you wrote about this when um, and you spoke to some people in the industry about their reactions to this, where it's, you know, some people were saying that he was chasing for clout while other people were saying, isn't it a good thing that a thousand people can see again? And the same principle kind of applies here, that a thousand people who didn't previously hear out of one or both ears now luckily do. Yeah, it's kind of essentially the same model as as the the blindness one. And, you know, when I spoke to, with people that time around, um, people in the healthcare marketing industry Generally, the consensus was that, you know, even though he's trying to gain clout through this, at the end of the day, it's still a net positive, you know, especially since a lot of people struggle to pay for health care costs. And, um, you know, this is kind of a way for people to see a positive benefit. Um, that was kind of the takeaway for most of the people in the industry that I spoke with last time. So I imagine this is kind of a similar, similar thing. I agree with you, Alesha. I would imagine, you know, industry folks would probably have that same kind of balanced approach. Um, and not that I'm, you know, an audiologist or anything, but I wouldn't think we're talking about curing profound deafness here. Uh, but some, obviously some level of auditory deficit. And for these 40, I think it was 40 people or so that he, that he helped, obviously the right, the right hearing aids have clearly made a difference. So uh, while it is, uh, you know, in that same model of him going for clout, you, you can't argue with the feel-good aspect of that. And um, I noticed that his next uh, venture that he's tackled is amputees. Uh, so uh, again, probably you know, will elicit similar reactions. And again, is it one of those things where people are really angry at Mr. Beast or is it a system that allows people who have a curable form of blindness, deafness, you know, amputees that aren't being given the proper treatment or access to treatment in a country such as ours? So I think it, it opens up to a wider uh, conversation on that front. Major League Baseball Network reporter Sarah Langs recently launched a fundraising campaign for ALS, hoping to spur another social media trend of fist bumping instead of ice bucket dumping. Langs, who was diagnosed with ALS at a young age, 29, launched the fundraising campaign on her birthday. The campaign currently aims to raise $30,000 for research. 
on the fundraising page, Lang said, quote, I love my birthday and I'm more grateful for it than ever. Her birthday is May 2nd, which is also the same day that former baseball player Lou Gehrig's Ironman streak ended. Gehrig famously had ALS, which is why it's often referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease. People can donate whatever amount they wish and are asked to post a video or a photo on social media fist bumping with the hashtag fist bump for ALS. The campaign also encourages people to nominate three other people of fist bump by tagging them in the post. Now, this is a very similar concept to the famous 2014 Ice Bucket Challenge, which seemed silly at first, but ultimately ended up raising $220 million for ALS research. Those funds ultimately went towards developing Amelix Pharmaceuticals Relevrio, which was approved by the FDA last year. Obviously, I, I mean, I, there's a video of me from 2014. I did the Ice Bucket Challenge. I'm sure there are other people in this room that did the Ice Bucket Challenge. It is nice to see, obviously, through a very unfortunate situation with Lang's being diagnosed at such a young age, that these sorts of trends do have traction and do have such a wide audience. I've seen, you know, the Cubs uh, put out a video. There have been other people in certainly baseball media that have put out um, some videos of doing the fist bumping. And Lesh, I know that you were the one that wrote the story for the site as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw that it was, it was gaining a good amount of traction on Twitter specifically. Um, I, I am not sure, you know, the, the effect it's had on Facebook or, or TikTok. It seems like it's mostly been kind of confined to Twitter for now, but, um, on Twitter, at least it's been gaining a bit of traction and it'll be interesting to see if it expands beyond that at all. Yeah. Lesh, I think she has a couple thousand, um, likes on her tw- tweet to post it, the pinned tweet. Interesting comment about whether, you know, that will spread to other platforms. But, you know, it just shows that this this works, you know, this form of fundraising. Amelix uh, recently said it's seeing higher than expected demand for Relivrio, which isn't necessarily a proof point for the drug's efficacy. It's hopefully helping helping some of those people. But it really is a, a, a proof point for the afore- aforementioned fundraising effort. Um, and uh, Jack, as you mentioned, Sarah's getting some nice um, traction. Um, and I saw, you know, the ultimate call out on NBA on TNT uh, with Charles Barkley getting the fist bump from ESPN's Dan Orlovsky and passing it on to his sports counterparts. So uh, it was cool to see that in action. I think anytime that we can fit Charles Barkley into the podcast, we have to take that opportunity. You guess. Yes, Chuck, as he's going, <laughs> going by now. And finally, the third story is kind of a lighthearted one, but also ties into kind of the state of affairs with the pandemic. The Onion published a parody op-ed from Dr. Anthony Fauci titled, quote, We are post-pandemic. We are immortal. Those still alive cannot die. In the piece, Fauci writes that we have, quote, defeated the feverish viral scourge and that the virus has, quote, been banished from every corner of our great nation. I wanted to read a passage that really stuck out to me. It reads like this. Yes, my friends, we are the inoculated. Death cannot touch us. We have killed death. Gone are the days of sorrow and pain. We will never see another fatal car crash, another pulmonary embolism, another triple homicide on this earth. Come ye immortals, strip yourselves of earthly linens and dance with me. I am nude before the swirling cosmos. Pour fire on my head, for it will not harm me. Now, obviously, it's a little lighthearted in light of everything that's going on in the world, but it points to the fact that the article came out as the U.S. announced the end of the public health emergency for the COVID-19 pandemic, and the World Health Organization did the same as it relates to the emergency phase. And in light of the shifting public health situation, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky announced on Friday that she would resign effective June 30th, following more than two years helming the agency. So that was kind of the onion's way of saying things are changing on the COVID-19 front. Did they need to you know, attribute those words to Anthony Fauci. I I think that's up for somebody else to debate. 
<laughs> I'm just jealous that you got to say the line, I am nude before the swirling cosmos. Uh, that was uh, for inspired prose there. You invited me onto the pod. <laughs> you, I, I did. You, yes. you used to do the pod without me, that. but you brought me on for that reason. <laughs> and you have enriched it so much. But, uh, you know, the, I'm glad you mentioned the triangulation of different events, you know, with uh, the, Rochelle Walensky's resignation um, and the end of the PHE. Um, so, the, yeah, I guess it's kind of like uh, the onion's way of marking um, the receding of uh, COVID concerns. Uh, but when you reach the level of an onion parody, that, that's saying something. This is not quite, you know, pandemic fatigue, but I guess post-pandemic cynicism uh, that we're seeing here. So uh, it was uh, all, in, all in good fun. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. 